1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Welcome, Shiloh. Good to be with you. So we're doing Section 64 today, the Doctrine and Covenants, and 65 and 66. I think the bulk of our time will be spent in 64, obviously, since it's longer. Here we've got some some sections that are following the so at at this point, the saints are starting to gravitate towards the land of Zion in Missouri, right? And so there's a lot of things, a lot of context going on here with with people coming in and out of the church and their interactions with the prophet and and the journeyings that they're doing. Here with Section 64, this is sort of in the wake of a journey that Joseph Smith had with, with several other people, and there were some disputations, right, right. <laughs> among uh, some of these people as they were traveling. And in particular, you had uh, Ezra Booth who took issue with Joseph Smith, and they had some pretty heated arguments, and Ezra Booth ended up um, later uh, leaving the organization of the church um, and was, was bitter against Joseph Smith for quite a while. But um, the, the hard feelings that kind of resulted from this are, are sort of the context of, of this section of Revelation that we come in. The Lord gives some instruction about forgiveness And I think this could spark a pretty good discussion about forgiveness um, if we have anything interesting to say about that. As it goes in, there's there's more of a discussion about this theme of Zion, how the saints are to understand it, what it means for them as a people. It's all still very focused on this idea of the second coming of Christ. But as a people – the church doesn't really have a clear idea of what this means. Or maybe they do have a clear idea of what it means, but they're constantly having to revise that and maybe sort of adjust their expectations of what Zion really means. And they're having a hard time understanding how to do that. So a lot of these revelations can give guidance on that to the saints. I think, though, at times that... uh, Because of what they desire and how they want to understand them, a lot of what they pull out from the revelations just sort of goes to to feed their already preconceived notions about the way things are and the way they should be, whether it's about Joseph Smith or about the church or about Zion. And I think even a lot of that carries over to today in how we read these and how we view them. We have section 65. That is an an interesting section because there's not like a particular – in the context of all this Zion stuff that's going on, there's not like a particular instruction or revelation that happens with it. It's more just a little bit more uh, pronunciation of, hey, prepare yourself for the second coming. And then we have section 66, which is a rather personal uh, revelation given to William McClellan and, you know, as we were discussing before, it, it almost seems like this revelation wasn't originally intended to be published to the church at large, but was rather, like I said, a personal revelation for William McClellan. And it's almost like, you know, it got recorded and and then maybe after he died, they were like, okay, we can publish it now or something. <laughs> because it seems pretty personal um, in, in many of the ways that it, it addresses it
1: yeah. You know, I, I think he, what you were saying there about Zion is spot on because the concept of Zion has changed so much over the years and of the expectations that we have of Zion. When it was a place, they were all going to go for their, the land of their inheritance and they was going to get a, a physical land carved out for them and they were going to live there and they're going to build up a city and then it was going to be a righteous city and they were going to have righteous laws and that was how it was going to be. And when that didn't work out... Then they kind of readjusted, and when they came into Nauvoo, they were no longer living this law of consecration thing at first, and then everything transformed, and then when Brigham Young takes off and goes out to Salt Lake, the concept of Zion even changes from there, right? It becomes much more political, much more legalistic right. um, as far as a as a city and a country and really harsh laws to be able to govern kind of with a, an iron fist many times. And then now, we have this completely different idea of, of building Zion where you stand. And then we even kind of go beyond that of saying, well, no, Zion is a place in the heart. And it, it's just interesting how this has evolved over the years, because it's not that any of the, the initial things were wrong. Not not that there won't eventually be a city, but it's it's like with the failure of the original idea of going out and building a city, it, it's like it, it it got whittled back. Until now, you have to deal with the soul first. And so that's it seems to be that that's kind of where we're at today. And so when we read through all of this, these, the Lord's trying to prepare their soul to go out and to do these things and to be able to get them to be righteous to go out and to do that. So it seems like God was trying to prepare them for that then. But the focus was primarily on the external, on the building of the things. and the, Because we can go out there with our physical hands and to build up a city. But unless you're really transforming the heart beforehand, it's putting the cart before the horse, right? We're really starting to do something ahead of ourselves. And God doesn't really need a city. He, you know, God can build a city if he wants to. He can be like, thus saith me, build us, here's a city. And a city would be, you know, he, he doesn't need us to build it. But yet Zion is a matter of the heart. It's to dwell in righteousness, right? So in that way, the city will be a manifestation of the inner soul. But that has to happen first. So, yeah, I I just think it's interesting how Zion has taken many forms throughout the church, and and we're going to see that we're going to see that again. We're going to see some God coming out a few of these places in the pages where He's encouraging people to to come into this experience with Him, and they're going to keep on thinking it's a city. We got to migrate. And he's like, you don't have to migrate yet. You know, just stay in place. But if you migrate after a little while, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. but, but stay here and work on yourself for a little while. Right. And and they're like, no, we want to migrate. And God's like, let's not migrate yet. Let's work on yourself. I'm like, But we want to migrate. <laughs> <laughs> and then they migrate and it doesn't end up so well for him because it doesn't look like they took them the time to really work on what they needed to.
0: Yeah and that's that's really what section 63 was about right and as we were discussing that that this was this temporal object in view everybody had great anxiety in order to accomplish this and so they're moving forward into it and and it's almost like the the lord is is um, running after them and saying, okay, you know, if you're going to go that direction, I'm going to come with you, but <laughs> <laughs> just just be aware, this isn't exactly what I had in mind for you originally. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, kind of like that. Obviously, you know, something something different than that is is how the Lord operates. One of the first things that stood out to me here in this section was verse two, and I just I love the the way this concept unfolds here. He says, "Verily I say unto you, I will that you should overcome the world." Wherefore, I will have compassion upon you. There are those among you who have sinned, but verily, I say for this once, for mine own glory and for the salvation of souls, I have forgiven you your sins. I will be merciful unto you, for I have given unto you the kingdom. There's some Beatitude talk in there. I just love the idea that the way that God helps us overcome the world is by showing us compassion. And the way that he glorifies himself is by forgiving us. And the way that he helps us obtain the kingdom is by showing us mercy. Anyway, I, just, I, I loved all of those things that kind of, to me, they, they do unfold the character of God a little bit in these verses.
1: Yeah, you know, I really liked verse 2 as well when i was when i was reading this because it was this it what stood out to me was overcoming the world because i'm like what does that even mean to overcome the world does it mean the temptations of the world does that mean that we're never tempted anymore does that mean that we've grown beyond those things yeah what does it mean exactly does it mean that we say prayers morning afternoon evening that we read our scriptures that we spend 30 minutes doing family history work every day It doesn't mean that we go to church every single Sunday, that we go to every single meeting, we do all of our home teaching. Like, like, does it mean that we check off all the boxes and we do it gladly and that's just what we do and we may or may not be happy, but at least we're checking the boxes and doing the right things? Like, is that what it means to overcome the world or is it simply that we don't follow trends that the world has set, maybe fashion trends, maybe belief trends, maybe... Oh, I, I don't I, I can't think of it, all the different trends we can possibly have. Is that what that is? I, is it all of that together or maybe none of it? And I think that we can turn external a lot on this. And I think we can get lost in the discussion by turning to the external world in overcoming the external world. When in reality, for me, there's more than enough work within the chambers of my own heart with this one. <laughs> To really turn into the the identities that I have personally that cause me anxiety, that cause me trauma, that cause those things in my life that I, I don't have the relationships that I want to have. And I want to have stronger relationships where I see weak relationships, and I have strong relationships, and I want to have stronger relationships, and, and, and good, solid relationships. And that for me, I think overcoming the world is really what it is for me and where I've come to. You know, Ben, you and I used to argue all the time and I mean, not together. Sometimes we would, but it was about the politics. And man, we mm-hmm. would stay up. We would stay up for hours. <laughs> Us and our wives, bless their heart. We we would stay <laughs> up until like one, two o'clock in the morning. You know, we'd come over, our families would come over, like six o'clock, we'd have dinner together on the weekends and then like settle down. And then it was just like, Politics and gospel discussion until one or two o'clock in the morning, right? And, and just be arguing this, that, you know, Book of Mormon says this. Well, the, the DNC says that. And, 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 you, and, and it was kind of a fun time, but it was all kind of looking external into this external world about what the external world is supposed to look like. That was a fun time of life. But ne- the older I get, I see that I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's cynicism, but it's just, I, you see the complexity of the world. And it's like, there's just too much. And it's like, what's left for me then? I mean, I can go out and I can be that number one person out and I can really gotten into the limelight. and, And maybe all of us can do this, right? And maybe we can affect change and change government systems and structures. But is that really the point? If we haven't changed our own heart? And so that overcoming the world has taken on a very, very personal meaning and interpretation to me of just how I... Overcome the world within my own heart.
0: You know, as as you were reading this, overcoming the world. You you know, you kind of ask the question, what does that look like? And you know, I, I started realizing that so much of what we do is we we observe the outward appearance of something, and then we try to make a copy of it, not realizing that you know the outward appearance of something doesn't in any way represent in a significant way, I should say, what it actually is. Like you can look at a person and then you can make a sculpture out of them, but the sculpture is not a person at all because it has it has no personality. It, you know, it doesn't have the internal organs of the person, right? There's There's so much to a person that is not in a sculpture. Now, there are amazing artists that can do sculptures that really do capture a lot, but it's still all aesthetic, right? It's still what does it look like? And a lot of times we want to take Zion and say, what does Zion look like? And we can describe what Zion looks like, but in order to actually have Zion, it's something that has to start within, you know, we've talked about this many times, the cause of Zion, as opposed to, you know, the effect Zion being something like an effect so I was I was looking at these verses here, you know, overcome the world. What does that look like? And then the Lord goes on to demonstrate the qualities of an individual who is overcoming the world. And he says, compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. These are qualities that are indicators of a person who is overcoming or has overcome the world. And it kind of goes along with the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, what does it look like? Well, we can describe all these things about it, but if we're pure in heart, we really do see the godliness as you know the godliness of it, the actual internalness of it, the spirit, the heart of the matter, rather than just the aesthetic, just the outward appearance of the thing, and so. Yeah, I I I see they're following the concept of overcoming the world as something that is related to compassion and forgiveness and mercy.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. Of you know, especially as we lead that into the next few verses where it talks about forgiveness. Yeah, and forgiveness is really a topic that I've I've thought about over the years, especially when it's God forgiving things, mm-hmm. because usually in a in a mortal spell. A mortal sphere. It's forgiveness is an attitude of someone having wronged us in some way. So, first off, there is an offense that we posit towards us that emotionally makes us feel bad and what it what it usually entails is that we expected the world to be one way it ended up being another and it was another because of the choices of another person towards us in a negative way than what we had expected and then it's forgiveness becomes almost kind of a coming into acceptance of reality
0: yeah reconciling what our view of reality is with actual reality right so
1: and, and so in that way, it's like, what does forgiveness do? To, it's the attitude of letting the other person's actions be what, it, what they are. And in that sense, I, I can now start to see a little bit about what it means for God to forgive. It means for God to let reality be reality. Because God already knows the things we're going to do. He, he knows everything we have done. He knows everything we are currently doing. He knows everything we are going to do and so these attitudes that we sometimes these human emotions that we project onto god these mortal emotions that we feel because we lack knowledge of yesterday and today and forever we we don't have that knowledge that all encompassing knowledge and so it's like human disappointment you know disappointment is an emotion that we expected one thing and another thing happened that was less than what we'd hoped for or expected but god doesn't have that He he exists in a way where he already knows what's going to happen. It's it's like Christmas morning. Every morning is like it's just he's excited for the present, but he already knows what's going to (laughs) happen, right? And it's like what I mean by it's like a parent on Christmas morning. They already know what the presents are, yeah. But the but the kids didn't, right? And so there's just this excitement of the present or of the here and the now of of seeing others who didn't understand or didn't know. And so in that eternal nature, God, God cannot be disappointed in the way that we th- we think he is, and at least in the way that human beings are, nor can God really be offended in the way that we are. Because even offense is that we think that someone should have done one thing and they did something that we find unacceptable. And it's like, well... <laughs> In this way, that's just not an experience that a God who already knows everything would experience in the way that we use that same language to to define what God is, who and who and what God is by our own experiences. So in this way, forgiveness is, for me, and God's forgiveness really is that we speak our traumas, those things that are affecting us, and we let God be God, and that forgiveness is God's way of helping us become reconciled and okay with reality and that we there really does have to be almost like a forgiveness of reality that we're forgiving reality for being reality that we expected it to be one way and it became another in our sin our sin was just the action of the natural man that refused to see what was already present and what always always already is right and so forgiveness just becomes that reconciliation of us becoming okay with what always already is, as opposed to the false perceptions of what we thought it was.
0: Yeah, that that's definitely one of the ways that I was thinking about it this time as I was going through. I I want to say it was Brian Zond that said something like meekness was forgiving reality. Or is that Richard Rohr that says that? I don't remember.
1: About forgiving reality? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Richard Rohr.
0: Okay, so that's a rare thing with, with meekness. That's kind of how he defines meekness as, as forgiving reality. But I like forgiveness in, in that context, you know, as, as an acceptance or a forgiveness of, of reality. You know, here over in verse 7, it says, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me and ask forgiveness. And then we'll get to the, the second part here in just a second. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting because there's like a qualifier on the forgiveness, and if we really consider this in terms of like what the functionality of these things is, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, the Lord forgives and the way that he forgives is by allowing us to speak our trauma. Like you said, you know, that's what confession is. We go to him, we speak our trauma. He He helps us process that into reality, forgive reality, forgive ourselves Right. And, and move forward. And, and that, that ask forgiveness is a way that we then, that, that's, that's part of meekness, right? You know, that, that humility, that acceptance of reality of who we are, what we did, so to speak. And then the Lord then can heal us through forgiveness. It's something that is given to us. I, I, the, the word is, is translated differently in a lot of different languages, but as far as English goes, it, it's really nice that it has the the give in there, right? Because there's there's one who is giving and one who is receiving. It makes sense that the Lord is is healing us, right? Giving us the way that we heal ourselves as we we speak our trauma and humble ourselves.
1: Yeah. You now in verse nine it says, Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. So, you know, this This is interesting that to forgive, you know, going back to, to what I was saying before, is to forgive means that we have to have seen an offense towards us Mm -hmm. and you know at some point i'm really gonna have to find the quote that i read from benson so many years ago but it it was that this it was kind of this obscure quote where you talked about how he's tried to live his life in such a way that he never has to forgive another person of anything because he already assumes that there, nobody does anything to him personally but any offenses are just between that person and god that, that they're just going to be reconciled with god and it's just a way of acting and being in that it was already resolved before before that needed to be kind of a thing That, that as it was happening it was already resolved it's it's a you know it's it's a very stoic way of looking at it but through my life in most things in my life i i'm able to kind of compartmentalize things of of either being true or not true and if it's true why would i take offense to it and if it's not true why would I take offense to it? It's not true. And I, I'm not perfect in that at all, but, but I, I'm usually pretty good at that. And in and going through life, and, and so in that way, when someone comes at us in a particular way, either what they're coming at us with is either true or it's not true. And in either case, where is the offense? But we can also see them as a human being. We don't have to perceive them as an enemy. The enemy that we perceive in the other is really just the projection of our own ego in the situation. And we learn that by loving our enemies in that we come, we go through that process of loving our enemies and come out the other side, realizing that we never really had any enemies to begin with, that the Lord identifies enemies as kind of a a starting point for us. But through the commandments, he leads us through experiences where we come out the other side, realizing, oh, Well, God could have told me at the very beginning that I didn't have any enemies, but I would never have believed God, or I would have rationally believed God. But the fact that he tells me to love my enemies, the process of loving my enemies tells me I go through this process and I come out the other side realizing, having applied this, that through the experience I've learned beyond rationality, that I have no enemies. And I think the same thing is here for forgiveness, in that when we go through true forgiveness and we recognize that someone's trauma is just their trauma, and they may be directing it at us, but either it's true or it's not true, and that doesn't affect us. But through forgiving them and giving them that grace, we come through that process realizing on the other side it was never really directed at us. It was never really us at all. And so we recognize that forgiveness... Is really just kind of a starting place because of the ego that we need to give up that ego to realizing that nobody really ever harms us or does us damage. They're damaging themselves. Now, I realize this, this is this can, there's a thousand examples that people can, t- that we can bring up and talk about that really try to challenge this principle. But, but it's really sound when you recognize and take responsibility for things that forgiveness is that immediate action that we have and and the change of heart that we give dignity and grace to the other person that we have already deemed as our enemy or someone to have been reconciled with. So it's a process that takes our ego and reconciles it beyond the ego of the other.
0: I think it's probably one of the more difficult parts of the gospel To reconcile with our individual experience as we go through life, because so much of who we are as individuals or who we have built ourselves up to be has a really hard time dealing with this concept of forgiveness. Now, I've never, I've never had something Happened to me in my life. Some great offense happened to me in my life. Lots of little things I could say, never something great. And so it's hard for me to really speak about any great notions of forgiveness, you know, lofty notions of forgiveness, except to say that I felt it in my life and that I can only imagine the peace that could be brought to those who who are able to extend that for very severe gross offenses that are committed against them and it's not something that i i really understand you know there there's stories and stories and stories that you can read about people who have experienced severe you know incomprehensible trauma and offenses from other people and yet found a way to arrive after sometimes a very long time of healing at a place of forgiveness and they describe the the peace and love and wonder of that moment i can't say that i've experienced that in that way only to the extent that i i can feel the sincerity of it when you know i read the story or whatever so there's There's lots of stories about this type of forgiveness and they're very inspiring. But again, you know, I can't speak to them from my own experience.
1: Yeah. And and that's a really authentic way and an honest way of being able to talk about it because for many of us, we really don't have those really like a gut-wrenching, life-altering tragedy that happens that requires of us to forgive. You know, I think of that... uh, that LDS video of the father who lost his family to a drunk driver, and about the forgiveness he he extends to the, to to that young teenager that had done that, right? Yeah, I've never had anything like that happen in my life either, but yeah, just to be able to say that I have read stories and I've seen the forgive, I've seen those stories of forgiveness of of people who do harm. Some of my favorite stories that that I I watch are usually in court cases where someone has done something abysmal and the family or the community will come and will forgive, the, forgive that person. Right. Yeah. And those, mo- those moments are just, there's no expectation that they, they need to, or they should, or, or that, that that's the way they it absolutely needs to be handled. Cause I know that especially in a lot of court cases and and violent cases, there are narratives about how communities look at how, the victim should be should respond. So I don't want to get into sure. that. But at least to say that when it happens, it's a beautiful thing. And with no expectation on them about what it, what it that absolutely needs to happen. But forgiveness really is the foundation of reconciliation towards peace. And so in our lives, as we are learning to let go of pain, sometimes it's going back to get into that roar thing that we talked about, is just it's forgiving reality for being reality. That we just have to forgive life for being what life is, and I think it's a really healthy way of looking at it. Because in a lot of ways, we tend to believe that God is the God is this proactive person putting things, trials into our way, or, or putting bad things into our life, or, or people are doing bad things to us. And I think forgiving reality as reality really kind of puts into context that life just happens we always want to kind of ascribe it to someone or to a greater like this was supposed to happen or this was a greater meaning and and, and life just happens and we learn through life happening how to deal with reality being reality and i think there is there's a really great lesson to learn there and it's one that i've had to keep i have i myself have to keep relearning and relearning and relearning because Sometimes I just don't like reality being reality. I, I don't like things are just the way they are. I would I would wish them to be something else than what they are. I would like to deal with certain other pressures than what I have to deal with right now. But we forgive reality for what it is.
0: Going back to the the stories that we hear of of cases of, of forgiveness, you know, one of the things I think we can see in them in, in terms of how inspiring they are is just the the human capacity for forgiveness that we may not otherwise be able to to recognize that uh, in some cases it, it seems superhuman. One of the stories it was told in general conference, I forget who told it in their talk from from years ago, was of a man who went into a an Amish school and shot a bunch of people and killed a bunch of people. And then took his own life. And then, subsequently, how the Amish community dealt with the death of those children, and then, in turn, reached out to the family of that person who had come and killed, and offered them comfort, and support, and forgiveness. And um, I'll have to look up the the talk and see how that was the story was told because. Was told and, and told very well, but all that to say that you know that the capacity, uh, the human capacity for for mercy and forgiveness, is um, often beyond what we may initially want to uh, to accept or extend. Our true nature and capacity is capable of it, as Christ teaches us and shows us, and we occasionally see it exhibited you know, in, in stories like those.
1: Right. You know, I, I recently watched a documentary about the Charleston church shooting where there was a racist church shooting in a black church in Charleston in 2015, where he just came in and he killed multiple people in the church. And it, if I, if I remember right, there were, I think there were nine, there were nine of the people there in the church who were killed. And, as I was watching a documentary over it, it was amazing how many of the members and the families publicly reached out and showed forgiveness on that situation. And, and he largely, the, the perpetrator, showed almost no remorse at any given time. But that was never the point, right? Right. It was just the fact that, that they did that. you know. But moving on here in verse 23, we have this th- – there was a kind of a new idea from what I had ever picked up before – but it says, Behold, now it is called today, until the coming of the Son of Man, and verily it is the day of sacrifice, and a day for the tithing of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. And then he comes down into 25, Wherefore, if you believe me, you will labor while it is called today. And, and it just stood out to me. I don't know if I've ever had that stand out to me before, about the now is called today. And for me, what stands out about that is the invitation. That no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what journey we've ever been on, no matter what path we have followed previously, from this very moment, today, you can change. Whatever, Whatever has ever been need not ever have to define your now or your future. Today is your today, and it can be whatever you choose for it to be. And so if you believe, labor while it is today. And we're called here to to sacrifice and in this context, the day of tithing, you know, that's what the Lord's calling for in, in the today. But when we take this into a bigger context, it's, it's for me, there's just a lot of mercy in that. There's a lot of mercy extended into whatever has ever been. Today is whatever you're, you want to make of it. And the Lord is going to let you do that.
0: Yeah. It's the idea in the Book of Mormon. This is the day, you know, today is the day of your salvation, right? That That if not now, when, you know, God is eternally patient, but why would you wait to experience all the blessings that he's, that he is, is offering you constantly? Why would you wait to, to recognize those and experience them? So, so it's, you know, right here and available for you. You know, this verse is always, we always, um, sort of tongue in cheek referred to this verse as the, uh, Tithing as fire insurance uh, verse, right? Right. <laughs> Did you <ever> hear that?
1: <laughs> yes, all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's some some good things here, and then in the next verse, it kind of bears it out. So, first off, a day of sacrifice. Okay. So, what is sacrifice? It, it there's a lot of ways of, of determining this, you know, and and the word literally means to to make something sacred, but it's a way that we we remove from ourselves a bit at a time, so to speak, that which doesn't pertain to our true selves, right? It's kind of like a cutting away of that which doesn't belong. We talked uh, several podcasts ago about um, how Michelangelo would do his statues. And you know, he'd, his concept was that, well, the, the, the statue was in there. I just had to remove the things that didn't belong in one sense this is this is how sacrifice could be viewed right it's it's a way that the lord has given us to refine ourselves right to to bring out our true self this principle can be codified in in the law of tithing but you know that's a that's a very like very specific way of guiding us towards that that the greater principle of sacrifice is that we are willing to let go of the things that aren't really us in order to become or to become aware of who we truly are in in our relationship with God. And so, we have talked about how the, the principle, or not the principle, but the imagery, symbolism of burning has to do with getting rid of the false self, right? And so, if we are constantly, from day to day, living this principle of sacrifice where we are are seeking to rid ourselves of these things that are that are not really truly part of us but to let them go and to focus on who we truly are then there's no dead wood to burn right in in you know moroni says in in moroni chapter 7 that that we have obtained charity and when he comes we will see him and recognize him because we will be as he is Right? We've purified ourselves, so to speak. And so that's actually how I see this verse, is that we are given the opportunity to now to actually become or become aware of who we truly are. And it's not just a matter of waiting for Christ to come until we can finally be who God wants us to be. It's something that we can actually be doing on a regular basis through this principle of sacrifice. So I I don't see this verse, if I ever did, but uh I don't see this verse as, as basically a, a harbinger, you know, of the the great uh burning of the world where everybody who hasn't paid tithing dies is incinerated, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> and uh and, and so here in verse 24 it says, For after today cometh the burning. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say tomorrow all the proud and they who do wickedly shall be as stubble. Okay, we talked about what stubble was in these earlier um, sections, and how that it's this metaphor of what's left over, right, after you've come through and harvested. It's the things that aren't really part of what the what the Lord is really at right, that grain, the actual seed of the grain. It's the thing that's left over that then does get burned up and reincorporated into the soil. So all they were proud and they do, do wickedly shall be a stubble, and I will burn them up, for I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I really like what you were bringing up there because we have talked about that burning before. We talked about it with Elijah and, like, when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, and and we talked a lot about the imagery about how in, in the Old Testament in these narratives, the burning that happens after, like the al- the allegory of the olive tree, and 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 those stories is always metaphorical. That that ash is always reincorporated back into the soil, just like you said. And it's from that reincorporation that God is taking everything. Nothing is lost. Nothing is is ever. Just like what Jesus says to the Father, none of which you gave me charge, I've lost every one of them. I have, I've, I've saved. Right? I, I've brought everyone in that you gave me charge over. And in that same way, when we, the Lord of the Vineyard goes out and they burn the vineyard, everything has a place. Everything is accounted for. Everything is reincorporated right back into its purpose and into the plan of the Lord of the Vineyard. Now he might be talking as wheat as you know he's talking about wheat as wheat. And is there anything good about the wheat or of the good olive versus the bad olive or the wild olive? Well, there's a context there that would that we would say, yes, the Lord wants a particular type of olive to put away. Uh, you know a way for the season as opposed to the the bad olives all of sort of
0: metaphors uh, break down
1: <laughs> but all metaphors break down right but in this particular way the ash and the burning is is always symbolic of transformation and about the lord transforming us and reincorporating us back into the story albeit in a new and a different way it's alchemy right yeah it's a new type of alchemy exactly and so in that particular way, yeah, I see, I love it there. And it says, this speaking after the manner of the Lord, not as the manner of men who think that the wicked can finally get their just desserts and destruction and just to kill off the wicked and how pious and righteous I am because I've checked off the, the most checklists. You know, that's the attitude of the Pharisees in the time of Christ that we check off all the right check boxes. And he says, no, you don't really do any of the stuff that you're supposed to be doing and being who you're supposed to be. It's, it's all about that heart. It's all about experiencing the love of God and coming into that relationship with God where we just manifest and start to act as God would act. Like, the, you know, the beatitude, that blessedness of being and doing what God would be and do if he was here. So yeah, I I love everything you said there about that burning. I think it's it's highly appropriate, and it never did set well with me. The whole fire insurance thing never set well with me. I'm like that's just (laughs) that's just that's just not what this means.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So um, moving on in in this section here, I have a special place in my heart for verse 33. There was a there was a particular time when I was a missionary when I was having a a rough time. I was in an area where people weren't listening and. Wasn't much cooperation, and and uh, I just I I wasn't feeling like I was doing much. I wasn't feeling like I was getting anywhere, accomplishing anything. And for some reason, the phrase from this verse came to mind. It was like I I woke up one morning, and it was like the first thing in my mind. All of a sudden, there was this phrase, and so I went and looked it up. Uh, Wherefore, be not weary in well doing, for you are laying the foundation of a great work. And out of small things proceeded that, which is great. And it just made me realize in the moment that the the Lord was aware of who I was and my intentions and my sincerity and what I was doing, and that it wasn't my job to achieve some particular outcome. You know, we've talked about this before, that uh, a lot of times, you know, we, we think it's our job to accomplish, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. But it's the Lord's work, and he's just offered for us to participate in it so that we can learn about who he is and experience the blessings of doing it. But he has not asked us to achieve any particular outcome. He's already said he's got that all taken care of. He's just offering us the opportunity to participate in it. Out of small things at that, which is great, you know. Often we may seem to think that our, our efforts are small or insignificant, but again, it's it's really about our participation in the work of the Lord so that we can, can understand our relationship with him more than it is about accomplishing something specific.
1: I think that's a really great take and a really important one because so many times we really think it's all up to us. We're the ones that go out and to do it. And there really needs to be a fundamental shift in so much thinking where we recognize that, no, we're not the one who's (laughs) who's really out there doing this. God's the one who's doing this. This is God's work. God was doing God's thing before we ever came along. And just like we've talked about in previous episodes, God invites us to do this. It's an invitation to come into what God is already doing. And in that, it's, you know, my wife, uh, my wife has a business, an at home business, and it, it's a very successful business that she's she was able to create. And at some point it got really big and it started to kind of get a little bit beyond her and you know, customers calling in and, and and there were just so many moving parts. And one of the things early on that she learned that brought her a lot of peace was just this mental shift of being like, I'm gonna turn this all over to God. This is God's kind of this is God's company, God's doing this. I just work here. And suddenly it's, it's just kind of just alleviating that kind of responsibility and like putting it onto God's shoulders, even though she's the one who has to make all the choices, all the decisions, it really does fall, the day-to-day falls down on her. It's just this mental giving it over to God. I'm giving it over to God. This is his work. I just work here. And I, I think we have to do that in so many aspects of our life. Give over to God. This is God's work, even as as a parent, there's so many times as a parent Yes, the choices come down to me, but I have to recognize God was here for my children long before I ever was a thought. And so God is doing God's things with my children, and I just work here, (laughs) as it were. And in doing that, that brings a certain focus in with my children to where I get to participate with God in raising them. And I don't have to be scared about what the outcome is. You do the best. You work hard to be able to train because we love our children. We love our children so much and we want the best for them. And sometimes they make choices that we're like, "Uh, I already know that's not going to make you happy, right? But in some cases, we just have to stop and say, you know what? God has you. God knows that person better than I do. God knows that child better than I ever can. I just work here. And, and so this has been a, a major benefit in my life as far as a parent or as, as I fulfilled church callings or as I've served in the community or as I've owned a business or as anything that I've ever done is just letting God be God. And don't be weary and well-doing. I, I think that weary and well-doing, we end up placing way too much emphasis on us as the center feature of what needs to happen that's where the weariness comes from is, is the ego weighs us down. But by handing things over to God, there's just, there's suddenly this, his burden is easy to bear. Let's just put it that way. His burden is easy to bear when we, when we hand over our cares and he gives us his yoke. It's so much easier. And and it, we, we become, it's like it vi- revitalizes us and allows us to be able to have the the clarity and the fortitude and what we need to be able to move on from that point.
0: Yeah. I, I- I see that here with just the next words here in verse thirty-four. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Doesn't say, you know, Lord first requires that you accomplish ABC so that you've proven that you are, you know, a hard worker or that you are a smart person or that you are a great leader or responsible or anything like that. Right? <laughs> it's just <laughs> your heart and your willingness. And uh, and that's it. He's already he's already taken care of the actual work. It's just if we want to participate in it with him, you know, we can have that experience that he is offering us. So in, uh, into verse 37, so I underlined this part here about the church being a judge because I thought it, it, I thought it was an odd way to put it. I think in some of the context here, it it does make sense as we move on to some of the later verses, but uh, I, I was curious if you had any thoughts on it. So verse 37, behold, I, the Lord, have made my church in these last days like unto a judge sitting on a hill or in a high place to judge the nations. So, I mean, at first thought, at first glance, I was just like, what kind of qualifications does the church have to be a judge of the world? Like, that seems, <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a lot of weight to put on the shoulders of the church. At the same time, I'm remembering that the Lord, um, gives the definition of the church, um, in an earlier section that, um, we may not be, we may be reading into this, uh, not quite consistent with that. You know, in an earlier, earlier section, I have to go look it up. The Lord gives the definition of the church as those who are willing to take upon themselves his name and follow him. And that's it, right? And so later here, we we go down a few verses um, and we get a little bit of context for this word judge because um, it can have quite, you know, every word basically has like a circle of meaning, right? And sometimes that circle of meaning can overlap, with other words and you you can use words interchangeably within this area where they overlap Uh, (laughs) and um, as you move out of that area the word starts meaning something different in in relation to its context to to something else but um, i think a later verse here kind of gives us an idea of where in that circle of meaning we're looking for the word judge like what what does it mean in this context? And so, verse forty-two, it says, "And she shall be an ensign unto the people, and there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven." So, in the earlier verse, it says, uh, "A high place to judge the nations," and then later it says, "There shall come unto her, unto her of every nation, out of every nation under heaven." And it calls it, it well, here it says Zion. An ensign. So an ensign is, is like a, a standard, right? It's a, a flag that's held up so that people know where to gather to. This is really in the context of battle, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. The idea is you, you hold up something and in the confusion of battle or whatever's going on, people know where to gather to. And so it's a standard. And I think that in, in sort of that circle of meaning of judge, you could look at judge uh, as something like a standard uh, that the world can be gathered or judged by a certain standard, and that the Lord, um, he says in the last days, has made the church to be a way, a gathering place, right, a standard by to people which people can gather to, unite under, and flock to out of every nation right this is something that's going to judge all the nations but i don't see this in in like a a judge like condemnatory way like um the church is there to to tell these people that they're wicked and these people that they're righteous and and give them some sort of a pronouncement of, of condemnation so anyway that was just some some of my thoughts on that verse there
1: yeah i like that a lot i like that a lot i i'd actually been looking over verse 37 i'm like huh how is that and and when you when you brought up that the church there are those that take upon themselves the name of christ i'm like oh that makes a lot of sense because those who have taken upon themselves the name of christ follow the path of christ and that automatically brings me back to the beatitude and so those who are meek and pure in heart and peacemakers and who are persecuted for christ's name's sake and for righteousness' sake those are the ones that stand as the ensign that stand as the standard by which all the other nations that don't follow the beatitude path, they're the ones that stand there as as the standard by which Christ is for us, right? So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that way. And I also love here that they're talking about Zion again as kind of a physical place. And in verse 35, it says, And the rebellious shall be cut off from out of the land of Zion, and it shall be sent away, and shall not inherit the land. Well, that's kind of funny, <laughs> <laughs> because because we kind of know what happened to the saints. You know, this is in 18, September of 1831, and they don't get kicked off the land for another couple of years. And then finally in 1838, there's the, the final showdown. So, th- so this whole, the rebellious shall be cut off out of the land of Zion and shall be sent away and shall not inherit the land. Well, if we're taking this literal, that's what happened to the saints. But that's really not the church narrative, right? We say they could have done things better, but it was really the mobocrats that forced him out unjustly. But here, it's just if we take that literally. But I like the figurative approach or more of the internal analysis as opposed to trying to blame them for or, or put accountability on them for their failures. To look at this and to look at Zion as, as an interior personal discussion, first and foremost— you know, and kind of like what we started with at the very beginning is this whole concept of Zion being an external place, an external city, an external uh, community that we build up. And I've spent most of my life looking at that, you know, and most of the discussions of Zion, of what, what Zion looks like, that's what it is. You know, it's like, how does Zion interact? And, and we both came from, from similar political backgrounds. And so a lot of our Discussions of Zion are framed by our American political philosophy, and so there's a lot of those discussions. And so it, it comes down to recognizing that, no, 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 no. There's no American political philosophy that has ever remotely built Zion. Even remotely, for whatever the Constitution's preamble and hope for a constitutional government, whatever it has produced, it's not Zion. For all of the good and the benefit that it's ever been, it's not Zion. And so that's not it. But when we look here to say, you know what, Zion is the pure in heart. And if we're saying Zion is the pure in heart, that leads us right back to the Beatitudes. It's that, it's that covenant path of following these particular, of following that path of Letting go of the world, of not over, not allowing the world to overcome us and our identities, and to change those things within ourselves, and to walk that whole way. Because it says, "For behold, I say unto you that Zion shall flourish, and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her." And we've talked a lot, bringing in Alma nine into the mix in verse twenty six, when it talks about how the glory of God, when the glory comes, when God comes in His glory that first time, the the babe in a, in a manger in Bethlehem when it comes in its glory the first time, the glory of God was grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and long suffering, a God which is quick to hear the cries of its people. And so when we recognize that Zion shall flourish and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her, well, the glory that's going to be upon Zion is that equity and truth and patience and mercy and long suffering. That's the glory that's upon Zion. Because we have entered that beatitude path, and that's what it is to become that Zion type person. That sixth is a sixth beatitude, the uh, sixth beatitude of the pure in heart are the ones who build Zion here. right? Zion is the pure in heart. And so we start to see that there's a lot of crossover here, and that the early saints may have been putting the cart before the horse. And in our day and age, it's a call to to reverse that. To really strive to build Zion in our own lives so that when the day comes, if it comes in our lifetime, then a city can follow, sure. But the city was never the important thing to begin with. It was always been the revolution and the change of heart. Right.
0: You know, as you were going through that with, with verse 35, I I read again in verse 36 and, and realized something that I hadn't quite picked up on before here. So, verily I say that the rebellious are not of the blood of Ephraim, wherefore they shall be plucked out. You know, this kind of goes along with the same theme here. The The symbolism of the blood of Ephraim was ostensibly those who are have the stewardship of gathering, right? So uh, Joseph, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Joseph is the one that's sent into Egypt so that he could then in the later days, uh, save his brothers from the famine, and so it, the birthright then passes to Ephraim, and it's it's his responsibility to care for the family, to gather them in, and um, and so this is the the symbolism, very very deep uh, symbolism that we uh, use within the church to signify this this concept and and our responsibility and stewardship of the tribe of Ephraim to gather. Not to divide, not to scatter, but to bring people in, to bring them together, to unify them. And so those who aren't going, you know, that, that are rebelling against this concept, they are, it says they're not of the blood of Ephraim. I don't, I don't, I don't take that literally. I just mean, I just take that to mean, hey, you aren't operating under this stewardship responsibility that you have of gathering people together. You are, you are dividing. You're not unifying. Uh, it, me, I see Ephraim symbolically as the great unifier, right? That, that stewardship of, of gathering people together. So, um, I, I did remember, I uh, found a, a, a note over about how the Lord uh, defines the church. And this is back in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 67. Behold, this is my doctrine. Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same as my church and so if we use that because the next verse says wherefore uh, declareth whosoever declareth more or less than this the same is not of me but is against me therefore he is not of my church <clears throat> so anyway if we use that definition of church when the lord says that his church in the last days is to be a judge and a standard it's it's simply those that repent and come to him that's the standard by which they let you know in the then the sermon on the mount It's let your light so shine before men, you know, don't put your candle under a bushel, put it on a candlestick. You know, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. This is really the imagery that's going on here in verse 37, the judge sitting on a hill. It's not as, it's not as a condemnatory judge is that again, as a place of gathering, it's this light on the hill, come gather in. This is the standard. This is the place to be. You know, if we're of the blood of Ephraim, we're actually inviting people to come in and gather. This this is all under the the theme and concept of Zion. That uh, the saints, I think, at this time they they really they kind of do have this concept and an idea. But um, as we see in later sections, they it's kind of like water in their hands. You know, it just it just they can't keep it together. <laughs> kind of just flows out. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well moving along into section 65 Ben, do you have anything about 65 that you wanted to talk about? this is kind of an interesting section because it's one that, that Joseph has designated as a revelation as a prayer. So it's a little bit it's a little bit different It talks about the keys of the kingdom of God but was there anything specific that you wanted to talk about it or? Bring so
0: up? Um, I know like in in broader Christian theology there actually is some detailed discussion about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And um, I'm not really qualified to get into all of that. I don't know if you've read much on it, but there does seem to be sort of a a hint at a, a difference here. You know, the kingdom of God being um, that which has been established on the earth, we might call the church um, in certain contexts versus the kingdom of heaven, which is what is actually happening in heaven. And so as part of, you know, millenarianism or the second coming of Christ, we have this concept where the kingdom of heaven comes and, and meets with the kingdom of God and, and it's united. Um, we even have these ideas in the context of Zion, right? Of the city of Enoch actually returning and uniting with the Zion that has, has built, been built on the earth and these becoming one. So it's, it's almost, um, just another way of putting that, You know, heaven and earth are combining. And so verse six, wherefore may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued, for thine is the honor, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. This kind of goes along with some of the things that we've talked about, how you know the 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 Lord coming, at least this the second coming event that is so often talked about. Is, is not overtly to just come and destroy the wicked so that the righteous can finally be righteous because they're, they're being, they're being held back in their righteousness by all the wicked people around them, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's that, it's that we, is that those who desire to be part of Zion are going to build Zion. And when they, when Christ has a Zion people to come to, he comes. And whether that's one person, or two people, or a million people, when there's a Zion people to come to, Christ comes, and he comes quickly. And so that's kind of what I see here. Uh, kingdom of God, let it go forth, so that the kingdom of heaven may come. It's almost like this precondition, right? That people need to be prepared. So...
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, the church has kind of evolved on some of the ways that they've looked at kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. And I have in some of my notes here from Talmadge in, in his book, Jesus the Christ, he talks about the kingdom of God as being the church, mm-hmm. right? And then the kingdom of heaven is kind of what like the council on 50 were trying to establish, like a, a physical secular – not a secular, but a system of like literal government and administration um, that will govern – and bring us into the millennium. So, it, it, a literal government like the Constitution. So, for instance, in- Oh,
0: interesting. I hadn't conceptualized it that way. I always thought it was a celestial thing. So
1: Yeah, I mean, it has evolved around that. Um, but origi- but mm. from even from this time in 1831, by the time it evolves into 1844, we have the Council on 50 talking about the Kingdom of Heaven being this new political government. Because Joseph Smith is running for president they know he's not going to get it but maybe he can even swing the vote and but, but the idea is is they're creating their own new constitution for the United States Joseph is set apart as the king of the world yeah and then they're going to make it so that Joseph Smith can usher in this new theocratic democracy they're going to over kind of take over the United States constitution establish this new theocratic constitution and they call this the kingdom of heaven the the governing body of of violence and coercion under God's name to be able to bring to order and with all the righteous laws and to, and to basically usher us into God's kingdom. Right. Did it work that way? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Not quite, quite. you know, and and so all the revelations of what they were supposed to be doing and all the revelations that came about how this was supposed to built up uh, within about two months that all kind of came for naught when Joseph was, Joseph was martyred. And so, and when he was, when he was killed. So, in that way Brigham Young tries to reinvent this with the Council of 50 in the in the Great Basin when he gets out there and there's some history about how Brigham Young kind of takes the reins and runs with this and you know Brigham has a Brigham Young has a lot more violent rhetoric you know he's he's always talking about chopping people's heads off and and for this, that, and the other, I mean, he's he's kind of like an off – he's kind of like <laughs> the – who was it in Alice in Wonderland? The Queen the, – the Red Queen or the Queen of Hearts? Oh, or, yeah, yeah.
0: Off, like, off, their head, off, off the of
1: their head. heads. Like Brigham Young has got like some kind of infatuation with just like taking people's heads off. But at, uh, at any rate, that whole kingdom of heaven for the early church by around 1844 and, and well into Brigham Young was a very militantly uh, – I keep wanting to use the word secular, but it's not a secular government. It's it's kind of the opposite of secular, but a very church-run, theocratic-centered, church-centered, governed government that would rule. much like the state of Deseret, where they're trying to get with the state of Deseret and turn Deseret into the state. And they couldn't do that in time, so then they kind of acquiesced to the state of Utah to have for me. But from at least a New Testament point of view, um, with the Beatitudes and how that conversation has ever in. Un, unfolded from a New Testament point of view. That kingdom of heaven as an awakening of the true self. I, I think everything you said there was absolutely spot on because it really is this... The church's purpose there is to kind of awaken the true self. And and that's the whole point of the, the rituals and the rites and the ordinances is, is, is awakening and that true self to an awareness of itself. So, so yeah, I think what you said there was, was spot on. But with some historical uh, context that... <laughs> They, they did waffle a little bit in how they in how they thought the kingdom of heaven was and should be.
0: Well, I know there's there's lots of ambiguity um, in these terms from time to time. You know the interchangeability of, of the two, but but like I said, I think that even outside the Latter Day Saint tradition, that there is a great deal discussed about the particularities of these two that that they are distinct within a broader Christian theology. And like I said, I, I believe that's the case, but I'm not qualified to talk on it, to speak on it. So um, I'd be curious if anybody does know about that or a, a, you know, maybe some good sources that some some theologian has discussed this at length, that I'd be curious to see what they have to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Moving here to, into section 66, Ben, you had brought up here William McClellan and it really is i kind of like focused on verse 10 myself when it talks about <laughs> seek not to be cumbered forsake all unrighteousness commit not adultery a temptation which thou hast been troubled and so <laughs> i'm like well i don't know if he really wanted this to get out into the public if this was a private <laughs> uh a private revelation but uh you know and then in verse seven i, I love you know i i think in a lot of ways jo- joseph tries to sound scriptural but in verse seven, go into the eastern lands, bear testimony in every place and to every people, and in their synagogues, reasoning with the people. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> I, I wrote in the margins Just of my scriptures, not a lot
0: of synagogues at this time,
1: right? US, I, yeah, I have in my in my margins. I'm like, were were there a lot of Jews in this particular part of town at the time? <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely some uh, poetic flourishing there.
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the ones that stood out to me. In this section, uh, besides 10, uh, verse 3, Verily I say unto you, my servant William, that you are clean, but not all. Repent, therefore, of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, saith the Lord, for the Lord will show them unto you. (laughs) (laughs) I I liked how the Lord says you're clean, but not all.
1: Right. right. It's kind
0: of an odd way of putting it because it's like, well, you either are or you aren't, right? And the Lord seems to be saying that it's not... Either you are or you aren't. It's saying you are clean, that there's more you can do. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's more to you. Like what it is that you have done, like the – I'm going to go back to the, the uh, discussion we had about Michelangelo and the statues, right? The part of you that is chiseled out is good and clean, but there's more to do right that's kind of how i see it like like what is finished is good but it's not finished it's almost like the creation you know it, when e- each day when there's when something new is created god says it's good but good doesn't mean complete and finished it just means it's it's good and so he's speaking to William McLennan that you know who he is and what he's accomplished so far is clean but there's more for him to see and understand. And this really speaks to me because the Lord comes to us wherever we are and, and affirms us. But then when we're ready, he also says, look, there's more steps to take down this path and I'll go with you. And so I love how he says here, repent therefore of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, for the Lord will show them unto you. Right. I'll, I'll show you line upon line how to walk forward. Into this, and so I, I just love how this verse kind of speaks in um. It it actually is less eloquent than you might expect from some scripture, and I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot too. Well, very good. Well, do you have anything else for sixty six that you wanted to bring out and talk about?
0: No, not that stood out to me this time.
1: Okay. Yeah, me either. Well, awesome. Well, thank you everybody for sticking around with us and for for listening, and and we're grateful for all the comments that we get in and for everyone's thoughts. We try to respond as promptly as we can. I know there's a few that have messaged and and they kind of fall through the cracks a little bit. And so I'll usually find you a week or so after you've responded, I'll try to be better. (laughs) But if there's ever any, uh, ever any questions or comments, definitely let us know. Best place is on Facebook. If you get on uh, Latter-day Peace Studies, our Facebook page, you can, uh, you can message us there. Uh, You can either send us a message directly to the page or comment on one of the posts. Uh, subscribe and like us over there and to uh to get updates and things that are going on and Lindsay owen is always putting out daily material and and i absolutely love everything that she's putting out and that she reads and it's one of the things i wait wait around every day for and just to kind of get a dose of of daily goodness so so check those out too but until next time i'm shiloh logan i'm ben peterson thanks for listening